This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. It is always a privilege to look into God's Word together. Um, and we rejoice when it is um, blessings and we listen carefully when there are warnings. So this morning, uh, this afternoon, I want to begin with, with this question. What is the worst confrontation you have ever had? What is the worst confrontation you have ever had? Perhaps it's with parents if you're younger, or with teachers, or with bosses, with friends, with significant others. What is your worst confrontation that you've ever had? You know, we live in a world where confrontation seems unavoidable. But the worst confrontation often comes when a person faces a verdict that he or she cannot plead innocent. A teenager who stands outside the neighbor's window with the neighbor looking right through the broken glasses at him. A drug smuggler stands guilty before the custom police with packet of heroin still taped to his chest. A drunk driver facing the judge with the victims often staring at him among the audience. This afternoon, as we come to Matthew 23, the religious leaders who have stood against Jesus and not just rejecting him, but are plotting to murder him at this very moment, the Passion Week, they are being confronted by Jesus himself. The worst confrontation they will ever face in public is found in this very chapter. As they stood hardened within, as they grind their teeth, looking at Jesus, Jesus stares right back at them and speaks to them as the judge of heaven and earth. In Matthew 23, it's a frightening confrontation between a religious hypocrites and God's judge. As the judge uncovers their guilt, as the king of heaven reveals the treason that they have before God, they will face a verdict. So let's prepare ourselves this afternoon as we look at this really difficult and challenging passage. Let's pray. Oh Father, as we come to this passage to hear some of the harshest words that Jesus has ever spoken, recorded, we pray that God, you open our eyes and our ears and our heart that we can listen carefully for the warnings of Jesus who has been so gentle in so many ways, strikes terror and strikes judgment on those who refuse to listen. So open our hearts and minds and prepare us for this chapter in Jesus' name. Amen. As Jesus announced his judgment or he pronounced his judgment and before he enters or climbs up to the cross in just a few days' time, Jesus begins his last public um, teaching before leaving the temple. So look at verse 1 to verse 3 with me as Jesus begins to speak to the crowd. Verse, verse 1, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. 
Now, if Jesus has kind of paused here, you know what happens? The, if he has paused here, the, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees will actually be smiling. Says, finally, Jesus has caved in. Finally, he has acknowledges our religious superiority that we actually have the seed of Moses. If Jesus had stopped here, perhaps the cross would not have come because they feel that they would have been able to subdue Jesus after all. But that's not how it, how it ends. Because verse 2 didn't end that way. Let me read it again. Verse 2, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. So Jesus announced to the crowds and to the disciples that when the teachers of the law speak Moses' words, words, listen to them, but be warned. Their words and their actions will not match. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they do not practice what they preach. In fact, out of their lust for religious power, they load up upon people's shoulders more and more traditions till they break under the load of their teachings. And yet, they will not lift a finger to, to soften the load. In fact, you know what happens? The inability of people to bear the weight just reflects better of how religious and how good they are. The people's inability reinforces the authority that the teachers of the law and the Pharisees have over them. The people who struggle to keep the Sabbath, who struggle to keep the food law order, scrutinize temple givings, those that could not fulfill them, as they walk past the Pharisees and religious leaders who look high up with the chin up, they bow their head, realizing that they are no match for the teachers of the laws and the Pharisees. Such was the situation between the the teachers, the religious teachers and the people, that Jesus has said this in another parable that um, historian Luke writes in, uh, in his book, uh, in Luke 18. Let me just read this for us. Jesus said this parable, recorded by Luke. Two men went up the temple to pray. He said the temple is in it. One, a Pharisee, the other, a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you. I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He could not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So such was the scene between the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and the people. They fast and they give not to God, but to distinguish themselves from the other sinners, the commoners. They love public praises. They, they made their palactories white. Uh, I've got a picture there. Palactories are kind of small letter box with scriptures uh, written in it and they're worn over the head of the Jews. And they made uh, the box wider than normal. Um, and they make the tassels that's kind of on the garment long so that as they walk, you kind of can feel the religiosity that passes uh, people. Now, what does the palactories and the tassels are meant to do? They actually kind of mention in the law, actually. But they are actually meant uh, to point people 
to God and God's commands. But when they wear it, kind of enlarged version, they're saying, look how religious I am. They love to be honored. They love to be called rabbis, which literally means great one. They love to be exalted. But Jesus has none of this at this point before his cross. Look at what Jesus says in verse 5. He exposes their motivation and says this blatantly. Everything they do is done for people to see. Jesus condemns not the law of Moses, he accepts it, but rather he condemns the hypocrisy that robs the law so that the glory comes to the religious leaders. And by doing that, they shift people's eyes from God to them and how to look good in a religious way. So turning from the religious leaders, Jesus points to the crowd and those who are willing to listen and he says this from verse 8 to verse 12. Let me read that for us. And look at it with me if you have your Bible. Verse 8 to 12. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone a father, for you have one father and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servants. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, let us not take this passage out of context that you can never call anyone father here on earth, literally. That doesn't sound very good. But rather, if you look at it carefully in its context by now, you realize that it's spoken in light of the religious poses they are there who have hijacked the glory of God and kind of rock of God, His glory, and put it on themselves. Jesus is saying that no one on earth should take the honor that's reserved for the Heavenly Father. Indeed, the light of the kingdom of heaven, there's only one teacher. In the light of the kingdom of heaven, there's only one teacher who points the way of salvation. There's only one Father who actually gives life. In the kingdom of heaven, there's only one instructor, the Messiah, who points to how we should live our lives. And all who are in the kingdom are all equal before God. You know, like a family, when, when you're a family, when you serve, you don't outbid each other, you do it out of love, isn't it? At least in a proper family. In fact, the instructor himself both taught and showed himself what... Um, what a person in the kingdom of heaven should be like because it's marked by humility. In fact, he says, the greatest in God's kingdom shall be your servant, which very much is himself, isn't it? That he himself came down from heaven to serve us by dying on the cross for us. So dear friends, as Jesus gives this really serious warning to the teacher of the law, the, the Pharisees, and then to the disciples and the crowd, we must take heed of what Jesus is actually saying as well for us. I just want to kind of draw two implications at this point, just pause a while, as we kind of carefully differentiate between hypocritical spirituality and what is authentic Christian living. I think it's important because we need to really differentiate and recognize how to differentiate between self-glorifying lives while well, kind of looking religious or God-glorifying lives as what Christians are required to do. So I've got just two implications for us now and before I move on to the seven woes that Jesus has on the Pharisees. The first is this. The followers of Jesus, if you look at today's passage, need to realize that we are kind of all equal in the kingdom of heaven. 
we arrive there not by works, we arrive there by grace. And we need to remember that, that is, we, we enter the kingdom of heaven by believing what Jesus has done and not what we have done. The moment we forget that, we forget that we are all equal to each other. No, in, in, in the Bible and even in church practices, we have offices like we have evangelists, we have pastors, we have teachers. Uh, this is found in Ephesians 4. Um, but none of these actually represent spiritual hierarchy. They represent offices, job scope, what, what these roles are meant to do. But it will be too dangerous. In fact, it will be dangerous if religious leaders start to take these offices and use that to define spiritual hierarchy that God makes them greater than the rest because of what they are called and what they claim to have. So Christians, we simply do not exercise authority apart from what God has spoken in the Word. So it's a vast difference between someone who is a mouthpiece of God and holds the office, and that being a mouthpiece of God equates to God giving them more favor. Did you catch this? This is a really important one because this is easily forgotten and here is a great warning on that. The second warning that we'll have, and later on we look at the seven worlds, it will kind of come up more and more, is that there are no teachings, traditions or words of spiritual authority outside of the teaching of Christ. Let me say that again. There are no teachings or traditions or words of spiritual authority outside the teaching of Christ and the scriptures. There are no so-called rabbis, no great ones that can speak more to us apart from what scripture has said. Therefore, it's very dangerous to start placing traditions, words, kind of even visions that claim to be of equal authority with God's word in the Bible. Because the moment this happens, people turn their eyes from the salvation that comes from Christ and from God to religiosity and something that is able to make them more than, than what God has promised them and what Christ has given. So, therefore, we have to be warned of the religious leaders that begin to start off recognizing God's word, but slowly they start to kind of move off with their many words or religious claims and begin to point and draw people away from God and His word. And when they do that, they will turn to what all salvation by works religion does. They will create regulations, requirements to get into heaven and process layers and layers of religious hierarchies. So we must be warned too that we must not seek the glory of God for ourselves because that is what happens to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and what continues to happen even today if we look carefully. So now to the self-serving teachers of the law and the Pharisees, Jesus pronounced some of the worst or harshest words that you ever see in the Bible, the seven woes on the religious hypocrisy from verse 13 to 36. So look at verse 13 to 36 with me. Some of the harshest words, six times Jesus used the word hypocrites or hypocrisy. Repeatedly they are called blind guides or blind Pharisees. Jesus called them snakes, brood of vipers, murderers. In fact, if you look at verse 15, Jesus literally calls them children of hell. That's not a very nice thing to hear from Jesus, isn't it? Now, why is their hypocrisy so condemned by Jesus? Let's examine carefully what are their actions 
and the consequence that actually flows in these seven woes, beginning with verse 13. Look at verse 13 with me. The first woe comes to the teachers of the law and the Pharisees because they have rejected Jesus. And not only have they rejected Jesus, they start to exert their authority to prevent other people from believing in Jesus. If you have been following Matthew 12, in fact, this has happened before. Jesus healed a, a, a kind of blind, demon-possessed man. The crowd was kind of amazed in Matthew 12. And the people said, could this be the son of David? You know what happens? The moment that question pops up in the people's mind, the Pharisees came in and says, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow is casting out demons. So they reject Jesus, and the moment people want to come to Jesus, they kind of use the authority and blocks them from coming to Jesus. So here is the first condemnation by Jesus, that they shut the door to the kingdom by the hypocrisy, and they stop people from getting in. How dangerous it is to have such religious leaders. The second woe comes in verse 15. Look at verse 15 with me. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Now, Jesus is not condemning religious or missionary work, isn't it? But what Jesus is condemning is the kind of converts they are making. They are not making converts for God. They are making converts for themselves and for their glory. And you know what happens? When these converts, they kind of follow their way of teaching, what do they do? They see what the teachers do and say, that's exactly how I'll be. In fact, I'll be better. The Pharisees, you're great, I'll be even better than you. And in so doing, the converts become twice the children of hell than the Pharisees who have converted them. And such was the horror that Jesus calls upon the religious leaders. You know, I remember when I was in Perth, I visited one of the universities in Perth. I was walking around, there were kind of Tuesday or something that we have all the stalls. I went to look at all the different religions and kind of have a chat with them. I came across the stall of the moments. The moments are known to be missionaries, isn't it? You find them all over the place. And I, I chatted with them. They gave me their book of moments. And, and I look at it. I'm very interested, what, what is the zeal in them? And how important really is this book? Because they claim that they read the Bible and they believe in the Bible. And as I look at the book of moments, it starts to horrify me. Let me read to you the introduction of the book of moments. I put it up there. But let me read this to you. This is what they say. The Book of Mormon is a volume of holy scriptures comparable to the Bible. It's a record of God's dealing with ancient inhabitants of the Americas and contains the fullness of the everlasting gospel. Concerning this record, the prophet Joseph Smith said, I told the brethren that the Book of Mormon was the most correct of any book on earth and the keystone of our religion, and a man would get nearer to God by abiding by his precepts than by any other book. And he goes on, he says, Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. Sounds great. That Joseph Smith is his revealer and prophet in these days. So using the Bible and the name of Jesus, they created another religion, isn't it? 
And I start looking at their articles of faith. And chapter 1, let me read to you what chapter 1 says. There's plenty. I'll just read to you three of the articles in chapter 1. The first one, it says this. In, in fact, article chapter, chapter 1, the third point, it says, We believe that through the atonement of Christ, all mankind may be saved. And goes on. But obedience to the law. Well, guess what is the law? An ordinance of the gospel is defined by them. Point eight. We believe the Bible to be the word of God as far as it is translated correctly. We also believe that the book of Mormons to be the word of God. Of course, point ten, it says we believe and goes on that Zion, the New Jerusalem, will be built upon the American continent, that Christ will reign personally upon the earth, and the earth will be renewed and received its paradise desical glory. As I kind of read the articles of faith, their doctrines, the claim of baptism, which you can only be done by those who are commissioned to baptize, and of course in the Mormon church. And the idea of celestial marriage, the religious hierarchy, etc. I became more and more worried. What kind of converts are they making the name of Jesus Christ as they travel the lands and seas and make converts? In fact, an author wrote about them this way, and I took it from the web, it says this, the plan of salvation according to the gospel of the Mormonism is not just a gospel of works, it's gospel of obedience and obligation to the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Of their many teachings, they ultimately draw the attention not to Jesus or to God, because that's what they claim, but to the church and to its leaders they focus very heavily on converts, on baptisms. And yet, let me read to you the questions they ask at baptism. Of course, they will include Jesus, but listen to this. I've got this directly from their um, website. Baptismal interview questions. Question two, it states this. Do you believe the church and the gospel of Jesus Christ have been restored through the prophet Joseph Smith? Do you believe that Bracket, the current church president is a prophet of God. What does that mean to you? Now, I became more and more horrified as I look further and further into it, as I dig deeper into it. I do not say this lightly, and I don't often like to just put names and condemn things easily, but it is deeply saddening, isn't it? As we look and ponder where this missionary zeal leads to in our modern world and what they are making of their converts in the name of Jesus Christ. Or they claim on the same God and that of Jesus. We look at our Bible and we look at what they are believing. We cannot agree with them. And you guess what? They will not agree with you. Because apart from their church, we are not the right ones as well. You travel over lands and sea to win a single convert and when you have succeeded... You made them twice as much a child of hell as you are. I'm going to move on to the next world, but um, this is common. And the judgment of Christ is serious. The third world speaks about how they become more and more blinded by their hypocrisy with Jesus calling them blind guides, blind fools, blind men. Look at verse 16 with me. Woe to you, blind guys, you say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by his oath. 
the religious leaders by now, Jesus said, have totally misplaced the values of the kingdom. They teach that one is bound by the oath. If you can swear by the gold or by the gifts, but not by the altar or the temple. They totally reverse the value that all swearing is actually towards God, isn't it? And it is the temple or the altar in the first place that is God assigned for them to come to God. How blind have they become? And look on to verse to the fourth wall. Look at first the fourth wall. It's kind of sandwiched between the six others. This is the middle one. And I think it really helps to unpack fundamentally why the religious can look so good but can go so wrong. Look at the fourth wall with me from verse twenty three to twenty four. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guys, you strain out a net but swallow a camel. Now coming back to tidings, uh, tidings is kind of well written in the law. Deuteronomy 14, Leviticus 27, they actually speak about tithings. You tie your grain, your wine, your oil, even animals to the Lord. Tithing is given, or it's meant to be given, you know, joyfully and fearfully remembering that all things are because of God's blessing. When you tie, what happens is you remember the faith, the justice of God over sin and rebellion. You have seen it against the enemies of God. As you're tying, you're remembering the mercy of God that God pulls out from Exodus all the, time, all the way now. And to say, tie, to remember the faithfulness of God for God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to Moses, to David, to the prophets are being fulfilled and God keeps His promises. Giving is never kind of a ritual, religious act. And Scripture says it this way. Let me just quote two Scriptures that Jesus must be thinking when He says this. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. This is about God. God has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. And then again, Zechariah chapter 7, verse 9. says, This is what the Lord Almighty says, Administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. As Jesus looked at the Pharisees and the teacher of the law, He says, Here you are. You, are care- you carefully and very visibly tie even your garden spices. Everyone knows, you even tie the mint, the dew, the cumin in your garden. Everyone sees your piety. But yet you ignore what God requires of you, of justice, of mercy, of faithfulness. You don't even lift your finger up to help those who need help. Back in verse 4. So Jesus doesn't condemn their giving. Giving is right, but it's an overflowing of who God is and their response to God, which they have failed. And driving home this point, Jesus says this interesting one. He says, you know, you're so careful about looking good that you will make sure that no unclean insect lands on your drink. You kind of let your drink, the net lands on your drink, or you kind of strain it out so that everyone says, ah, these people are really so conscious of God. But, God. but Jesus says, you have no problem with swallowing a camel, which is an even more unclean animal, right in the presence of God. You, you have no qualms about doing what is repulsive against God if it doesn't affect your reputation. 
how can something religious look so good but go so wrong? Because religiosity is fundamentally self-focused. The the religious leaders make sure they are seen to be faithfully giving to God, but they actually do not care about God at at all. They're not concerned about God. They're not concerned about God's concern about justice or mercy, about faithfulness. This is what really matters to God, but this is not what matters to them. This is kind of a heavy chapter in these seven worlds, but look at this is the last point where Jesus will bring out in his public teaching before the cross. And then he unpacks another three more hypocrisy on teachers of the law and the Pharisees. So look on to the last three woes that Jesus has. The fifth one, he calls them out on their hypocrisy of looking generous, looking good externally after measuring the mean, the dew, the cumin, but they're full of greed inside, of self-indulgence within. I don't know about you, kind of, I've been guilty at times of washing my dishes badly. I kind of like, all oh, the oil are there, I kind of wash all the oil, and then I'll keep the dishes, and when dinner time, two days later, my wife said, Andrew, do you wash the dishes? I was like, I did, like, and you look, oh, my goodness, I repent and wash it hard, but it's a lot harder to wash once everything dries up in there, isn't it? But such is the example of the religious leaders. It's worth a pause as we think carefully of such leaders who are obsessed with how they look before others, who want to look good, perfect, beyond rebuke, and perhaps if they could and put a halo on their head, they would have. Perhaps some even have and have really powerful jets to fly around. But in the meantime, they would not lift a finger to those that God are concerned about. As we look at this, these woes that Jesus have on the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, I think we too need to be warned of our own lives that we do not put up a religious or godly front to gain the praise of others, but cares not if God is offended or if God is pleased. Because that is a lot easier. Religiosity is so much easier to look good on others. Sunday is the best time. You look great on Sunday, but Monday to Saturday, we don't really want to meet uh, any Christian friends. This is dangerous because that is exactly what religiosity is about. But move on, the last two. Again, at six wolf, Jesus calls them bluff. They work hard at looking righteous before others, but carefully they practice their religiosity, keeping the law. But you know what Jesus says? This is bluff. Like whitewashed tombs, the actions are used to hide hypocrisy and wickedness underneath. And seven wolf finally reveals that these religious leaders are really sheep, are wolves in sheep clothing. Look at the last woe with me. What is the worst confrontation we are asking for religious people? It is the condemnation of God on those who claim to be worshipping Him. Verse 29, Jesus calls them hypocrite. Verse 31, Jesus calls them snake brood of vipers who will not escape being condemned to hell. 
That is a very scary thing to ever hear from the words on the mouth of Jesus, isn't it? Why did Jesus place such a harsh judgment on them? Because they not only reject God, they are murderers of God's prophets. They love so-called to honor the dead saints, but they will murder live ones. Let me say that again. In what they're doing at the seventh world, you realize they love to honor the dead saints, but they'll murder a live one. Jesus calls them the descendants of murderers who shed the blood of God's righteous. Look at verse 35. He says, remember the righteous Abel and Zechariah? I mean, just tell us the story of this too. Um, Abel and Zechariah for us, briefly. This is the story of Abel in Genesis 4, verse 6 to 8. Let me read to you, it's on the screen. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Why, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. You know what? The first two sons from Adam and Eve, one just killed half the world because of the sin in him. Cain's anger on his brother Abel, because Abel, when he did what was right, showed that he did what was wrong. And to silence that, he killed his brother Like Cain, the religious leaders stand before Jesus, will murder the righteous because of their sin. And again, let's look at the next story of Zechariah. Let me just read this briefly for us as well. Zechariah is found in 2 Chronicles 24. Let me read the story of Zechariah for us. 2 Chronicles 24, 17. the, The officials of Judah came and paid homage to the king, and he listened to them. They abandoned the temple of the Lord, the God of their ancestors, and they worship Asherah poles and idols. Because of their guilt, God's anger came to Judah and Jerusalem. Although the Lord sent prophets to the people to bring them back to Him, and though they testified against Him, they would not listen. Then the Spirit of God came to Zechariah, son of Jehoiada, the priest. He stood before the people and said, This is what God says. Why do you disobey the Lord's commands? You will not prosper because you have forsaken the Lord. He has forsaken you. Verse 21, they plot, but they plotted against him, and by the order of the king, the king of God's people, they stoned Zechariah to death in the courtyard of the Lord's temple. King Joash did not remember the kindness of Zechariah's father, Jehoiada, had shown to him, but he killed his son, who said as he was laying, lay dying, Zechariah said this, May the Lord see this and call you to account. been 850 years, but these words, Jesus pulled them out. The Jewish leaders were meant to lead God's people in the days of Zechariah. They abandoned God, they turned away from God and even murdered Zechariah, the son of God's priest who came to warn them of their sin. How, as we pause here, how are this murder of Abel and Zechariah kind of relevant to the religious leaders in Jesus' time? Why did Jesus kind of put such a harsh judgment on them that they will not escape from being condemned to hell? The answer is found in verse 31, 32. Look at verse 31, 32 of what Jesus says to the religious leader. 
So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then, complete what your ancestors started. And guess what? So they will. By the end of this very Passion Week, on Good Friday, these religious leaders will murder like their fathers, the way that they have murdered Abel and Zechariah. In fact, in just a few days, they will complete the whole package of what their ancestors have started. They will murder the very Son of God, the King of the Kingdom of Heaven. But you know what? The words of Zechariah at his death will hold true. May the Lord see this and call you to account. They will face the consequence of their sins. Now, dear brothers and sisters, we kind of journey on Matthew 23 for quite a fair bit. Matthew 23 is a pronouncement of Jesus' judgment on the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. But you know what? It will hold true for those who follow their footsteps. Those who shut the door of heaven, who lead people astray with false religiosity, who make their converts twice the children of hell, who use religion for their personal gains, who cares more for their own glory, and they will even usurp the glory of God in the name of religion for themselves. The words of Zechariah will hold true on them, even as Jesus declares the world that may the Lord see this and will call you to account. As I kind of want to just spend some time to finish up, how does this passage actually apply to us? Now, as mentioned earlier, we must be very careful not to build kind of spiritual superiority over others in our own lives, away from God's salvation in Christ and based on ourselves and religions. But in God's kingdom, there is really no place to build a religious empire. There's no ladder in the kingdom of heaven to climb because we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the first thing. Secondly, we need to recognize how serious Jesus actually views spiritual treason. I think if there's anyone who's serious about it, Jesus is the one who is most serious about spiritual treason where religious leaders use God's name to draw people to themselves. Jesus does not take this lightly. Jesus is not the meek and mild Jesus of Christmas. Jesus is the judge who puts condemnation on those who take the glory of God and of Him for themselves and in so doing, draw people into hell with them. So how do we apply this? I think one, one of these few things that we can think about on this is, I think you need to pray for your pastors and your teachers to stay humble before God. Pray the same also for ourselves. That we may never see God as a pocket-sized deity, an Aladdin lamb, or kind of a stepping stone for us to manipulate for personal gain. It horrifies us, it should horrify us, when we look in this world and we see people using God, or using Christ, as stepping stone. Because the judgment on them has already been pronounced in Matthew 23. And we pray that God's people will not be led astray by those who take the footsteps of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. These are very real and these are warnings for us. And finally, I just want to bring out that we also need to recognize that Jesus never takes delight in judgment. 
He speaks longingly for sinners to come back to Him, that He may spread His wings to cover us from the judgment that comes. And that's how Jesus ends Matthew 23, when He focuses on Jerusalem. Let me just close with these last words of Matthew 23, starting 36. Truly I tell you, all this will come on this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hand gathers her chicks under her wings and you are not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And chapter 24 verse 1 continues, Then Jesus left the temple. And he never went back. No, as Jesus speaks one last time at the temple and he makes his final departure from it, he looks at Jerusalem with compassion. He says, How I long that you're willing to come under my wings. But you're not willing. And so the desolation will come to you. It's amazing, isn't it? Because Jesus is actually speaking to those who will in a few days hang him on the cross. He looks at them and says, How I wish that you will come under my wings. But they will pull his hands and nail him on the tree. But Jesus, he is a compassionate king who does not want any to perish. And what he says to Jerusalem, he says to sinners who need his coverage, as Jesus finished his judgment, he walks off. The judgment will come on Jerusalem. And we have said it a few times, we will see it here even more next week. But judgment does come, desolation does come to Jerusalem and the temple is in it, AD 70, when the future to be emperor, Titus, where he led his soldiers, he besieged, he conquered, he destroyed the whole Jerusalem and the temple in 70, and it fell into total desolation. But that is just the physical part. The judgment from God will still come upon those that will face the judgment that Christ has said. And how Jesus ends, he ends actually quoting Psalms. This is actually a quote from Psalms 118, 26, where Jesus concludes that Jerusalem will only see and recognize him again on the day where he actually returns in his glory. But on that day, they will recognize him as the judge as well. So dear brothers and sisters, you know, shortly after this, Jesus will be put on trial by the religious leader. But actually, as they put Jesus on the cross, it is Jesus who has put them on trial. And the judgment of God. Those who use religion for personal glory will not be saved. But those who repent and come under the wings of Jesus will. And that is what Jesus left off for us. And second, I'll close and then pray for us. May we not fall under judgment when Jesus returns. And pray that those that we know will not as well. Because we are people who will truly humbly repent and comes under the wing of Jesus. Let me just take this time to pray for us on this um, very heavy passage of Matthew 23. 
Dear Father, how great and compassionate and merciful you are. They have given us chance to give, to tie, so that we can remember your justice, your mercy, and your righteousness, and all that you have. So God, we may come to you, and daily we recognize that it is by grace that we have been saved through faith, and it's not ourselves. It's a gift that you have given, and we have nothing to boast. Father, we pray for our church, for ourselves, for our leaders, that God, as we look at your word, as we teach your word, may we always come humbly and preach faithfully and learn faithfully and speak uh, honestly of who Jesus is and the salvation we have in Him alone. Father, as we look at this world, may we be more horrified that the judgment that will come on those who have followed the footstep of the religious leaders, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. We pray, God, for repentance of those who have gone astray, who have followed the wrong voices, that they will repent and they will be able to come back to Christ. That they and we may not be children of hell, but we may be children of the kingdom of heaven. Pray and thank you for Jesus, still willing to go to the cross for our sins. And we trust in His works and His person for our salvation. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.